Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. If you've been with us through Genesis, I hope that you're following with us and tracking with us. Uh, You know, it's been about a year, uh, a year and a month. We started Genesis in January, early January of 2020, and we're still in it today. And we've kind of broken it up into three sections. We, we, sections. We've seen in chapters one and two that we are oriented to God, that God rules the world with his powerful word. And in the second phase, in verses three or verses, chapters three through 11, we see disorientation as, as Adam and Eve sin and they have children and they pass on their sin to their children. The world becomes more and more chaotic, leading to um, efforts and judgment from flooding the earth uh, all the way up until God's judgment at the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis 11. But now we're in this section in chapters 12 through 50 where God is reorienting uh, mankind to his character. And he does so primarily through three characters in the book of Genesis. We've already kind of come through our time with Abraham and we saw God just reinitiate relationship with Abraham, making covenant promises, I mean massive promises to Abraham. Uh, Today we close the book on the chapter, chapter of Jacob. It doesn't mean that Jacob won't be mentioned in future chapters. He'll be present, but really the emphasis and the focus of of what Moses is sharing in the book of Genesis will move off of Jacob and will move on to Joseph and the other brothers of Jacob. So here's our big idea. As we see this last chapter of the emphasis on Jacob, this is our big idea. We remember God's promises to navigate life's difficulties. Uh, We remember God's promises, the things He speaks to us, the words He speaks to us, so that we can get through life's hardships. And really what we're going to see in this passage this morning is two different phases. The first is that God's going to call Jacob back to Bethel, and He's going to reaffirm His promises to him in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 35. And so God's going to take Jacob in his sinfulness and his brokenness, and he's going to invite him back into his presence, and he's going to reaffirm these massive promises. But then in verses 16 through 29, Jacob's going to face hardships, and he's going to beg the question for us this morning, how is it that faithful people suffer difficulty? How is it that people that have received the promises of God suffer such hardships? Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're facing some difficulty this morning and and you're trying to seek how to get through it with faithfulness to God. How is it that we step out in faith and and live this life according to what God has shown us of himself and his promises? Are you storm-tossed? Are you bone-weary? Are you struggling to navigate navigate the difficulties of a sin-cursed world? And I wonder if you might find yourself in good company this morning. I also wonder if there might be means of fresh grace, new mercies from our God for us. To that end, I want to pray. I want to pray that God maximizes our time from His Word here together. Lord, we ask now that You would allow these words to speak to our hearts, to speak to our minds. Lord, our lives are chaotic. 
even on the way in this morning, we've wrestled children, we've uh, struggled to get prepared, we've come in haphazardly. Speak now to our hearts and to our minds. Remove the blinders, unstop our ears so that we could see and hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, the first thing that happens is that God calls Jacob back to Bethel. And I want to read this from verses 1 through 15, part of which Brian has read this morning. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. See, Jacob's family just came out of Shechem. Like, if we were to go back into chapter 34 or just remember where we were last week, uh, this huge issue happened in Shechem. There was the rape of Dinah and the silence of Jacob and the over-justice of Jacob's sons. And it kind of culminates to verses 30 and 31 of the last chapter in Genesis 34, where Jacob is saying, you have made me a stench to the nations. And Jacob's sons are looking back at Jacob and they're saying, should we allow our daughter to be treated like a prostitute? And so there's this massive issue of just injustice and what's happening in chapter 34 carries over into chapter 35. And it's with this in mind that God invites Jacob back to Bethel. Bethel has this history, doesn't it? After Jacob fled from Esau, fled from his father's home, he was scared for his life, he had no possessions to his name, he goes out to the wilderness, he sets his head on a rock, he falls asleep, and he dreams. And the dream that he dreams is of angels ascending and descending on this staircase, and he's reminded, okay, God is present here, and he wakes up and he makes this vow to God in Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22. This is what he said, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, then, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. So what God is doing in verse 1 is he's calling Jacob to honor his vow. He's saying, come back to Bethel, build the temple or the altar that you told me you would build, honor your words that you gave to me a few chapters ago. And now, even after Shechem, even after the sinfulness of chapter 34, God's inviting graciously his servant back into his presence. We go on in verse 2. It says, So Jacob said to his household, to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distresses, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. See, what happens is Jacob's family's planning a road trip to Bethel, and Jacob calls for two specific things, right? First, that his family would put away foreign gods. And you're saying, where did Jacob's family get foreign gods? Well, they probably came from Shechem last week. They probably came from the city that they looted and pillaged and stole all of their items and their sons and their wives, and they probably collected all those things. It might also have come, remember, Rachel stole Laban's idol when, he, when she was leaving that house. So they have these foreign gods that are with them. 
Um, They're told to kind of put these things away. Secondly, they're told to purify themselves. If you remember uh, later on in Exodus 19, when the people of Israel come to the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses is about to climb the mountain, Moses calls the people of God to purify themselves. And uh, Wenham is saying that purifying oneself meant abstaining from sexual conduct and abstaining from shedding blood. Two things that just happened in chapter 34. So uh, Jacob is then calling on his family to have this time of purity so that they can go back and honor God. And so what happens is that Jacob buries these gods under a tree. Uh, If you see that in verse 4, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears that somehow that's tied to idolatry. Jacob took them and he hid them or buried them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So this is the first of four burials that happen in our passage in chapter 35 today. The point is these idols were never to be accessed again. Really, God is already kind of laying the foundation for this idea that God would not be in competition with other foreign gods. If we were to fast forward again to the law that was given at Mount Sinai, God would make this statement in Exodus chapter 20. He said, you shall not bow before other gods or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Isaiah uh, chapter 48, God says, I will not give my glory to another. God is jealous for his glory. He will not split his glories with a false god. And so Jacob buries those false gods beneath the tree there near Shechem. Verses 5 through 8, what we see is that Jacob goes to Bethel, and as he's going, something tragic happens. Look at verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar, And he called the place El Bethel, that's God of Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bakuth. What happens here is that Jacob was concerned. Uh, If you go back into chapter 34, Jacob was concerned for their safety, right? It kind of makes you not the most popular person in the neighborhood when you kill a whole town's worth of people. So just a general rule of life, when you kill your neighbors, other neighbors don't trust you very much. And so Jacob is afraid for his family. And what happens in 35 and verse 5, he's going out and God is protecting them. Uh, He's going with them. Uh, but uh, uh, Jacob immediately in verses 7 or 6 and 7 is building this altar in obedience to God. But then in verse 8, we have this kind of insertion of something that happens. Uh, probably the, the nurse that raised Jacob, uh, his mother's handmaiden, uh, dies. And we don't know how he was in contact with her or what exactly happened. We don't honestly even know what happened to Rebecca. But it goes to show that someone close to Jacob has died. And so we really get a sense of this when he renames this place Alan Bakuth, which means Oak of Weeping. And Jacob's highlighting for us kind of this uh, emotional effect that this is having on him and, and on his person. 
Well, in that context, he then goes on in verse 9 through 15. Look at verse 9 with me. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, and I will give to you, and I will give uh, the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. See, there's really uh, two restatements here from God. The first is that God reinitiates Jacob's new name, uh, Israel. God wants him to be renamed Israel. If you remember what we were discussing a few chapters ago, Jacob's name meant heel grabber. It really was kind of a significant of, of being a cheater, someone who was uh, conniving and manipulative. And really, we saw that from Jacob in his life. Jacob was constantly kind of cheating others. He cheated Laban. He cheated Esau. He cheated his own father. And what God is doing in, in renaming him Israel, he's taking away this, this uh, name that's marked by sinfulness, and he's giving him this new name of faith. Because the new name, Israel, means uh, God fights. God's tying Jacob's character to himself. And so God initiates Jacob's new name in Israel. And a lot of this might be kind of even flashback of, of what happened along the banks of the Jabbok as, as Jacob wrestled with God there. But the second thing that we see is that God restates his blessing to Jacob's family. Uh, This is really nearly exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 28. The the words themselves are almost verbatim. There are a few different statements that are made in there, which makes me think that this is a separate account, not just a restatement of those former accounts. But the restatements are God promised Jacob this land, Bethel. God promised him a multitude of offspring. God promised him that through his offspring all the earth would be blessed. God promised Jacob his continuous presence. But here there's one additional promise that didn't exist in chapter 28. Namely, in verse 12, kings shall come from your own body. In fact, if we kind of look at this section for just a second, we kind of just take in just the general tone of what's happening. What we see is that God is constantly promising Jacob an heir. And that's kind of noteworthy as the discussions that we've recently had about Jacob's sons and some of the things that will be brought to light in this chapter, in chapter 35. Because we might be looking at Jacob's sons and saying, these guys are, these guys are unruly. Uh, who's going to be a king that comes out of these guys? Which, which one is going to rise up and actually be worth following? It's a worthwhile question for us to consider. Which of these sons is actually supposed to be the, 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 the leader, the, the good person that we follow? This somehow ragtag band of misfits will become kings. This group of hoodlums will bless the nations. As we look at this, we kind of just raise our hands. We don't know. See, I think what we see in this early part of Genesis 35 is a reminder that God meets sinners with grace. Recounting God's grace to Jacob, just thinking about what, what God has extended to Jacob, the mercy that he's extended him, God beckons Jacob back to himself. 
God bestows gracious promises on Jacob. God brings protection to Jacob and his family amidst their sin. And he does all of this after the debacle at Shechem. Think about that. God graciously intervening, interacting with his servant Jacob. It's a reminder this morning that God is willing to meet us amidst our sin with abundant grace. No matter how far off you have wandered, there is the potential for mercy in God's presence. And to be clear, this grace is not just arbitrarily dispersed. It is purchased by Jesus at the cross, whereby the God of heaven poured out his divine wrath upon his chosen servant, his son, Jesus Christ. And as his son's blood was sinless, it made payment for the wrongdoings of sinners like you and I throughout all generations. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, there's grace, abundant mercy available to you in Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of sins you have perpetrated against God. God can meet you with grace this morning. Amen? Maybe you're here this morning, though, and you are a believer in Christ. You have walked with the Lord, but you're worried that you'll wear out God's patience with you. And we're reminded for a second just of the hundreds of people that were slain in Shechem, the violations against these families, against these people that, that God's chosen people, Israel, were meant to bless. There's a, I'm not a musical guy, so I just want to own that before I say this illustration. But if you ever watch the story Les Miserables, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, okay? But there's this initial story of Jean Valjean who, who comes out of prison. He's been in prison for 19 years, and he comes out of prison, and he cannot find a place to stay. And, and what happens is this bishop kind of brings him into his home, provides him a meal, and gives him a bed to sleep in. Well, Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night and steals the silverware from this good, benevolent bishop. As he's caught by the police, they drag him back to the bishop's house. And as he's brought there to face the one that he has violated, to face the one that he has robbed, to face the one that he has stolen from, the bishop picks up the candlesticks as well. And he says, but you forgot the candlesticks. I'm not going to bring justice. I'm going to bring mercy. I'm not going to bring the full extent of the law. This is a picture of grace. You and I have violated God's righteous standard, and God extends to us mercy and kindness in Christ through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We also are lawbreakers, but we are beckoned back to God's presence. See, what we see in these early phases of of chapter 35 is grace, abundant mercy, kindness, What we see in the latter half of chapter 35 feels out of proportion. It's difficulty and struggle and hardship. It's with that that we turn to verse 16 of chapter 35. Look there. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Excuse me. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. 
And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called his name Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. See, Rachel dies in labor. And this is heartbreaking, isn't it? Maybe some of us have experienced something like this, either the death of a child or the death of a loved one amidst labor. These are heartbreaking issues, and it affects Jacob as well. But notice the names that happen. Rachel calls out in her dying breath to call the name of this child Ben-Oni, which, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob renames the child Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. There's a couple different interpretations of what's happening there. Either Jacob is just trying to be positive so that this kid just isn't marked by his mother's death for her whole life, his whole life. Uh, There's another uh, possible thing that that really Jacob is saying, it's it's an honor to Rachel. This is the son of one who is my right hand, who is my favorite, who is so good and, and pleasant to be around, my true love. See, while Rachel sees hardship, Jacob chooses gratitude and thankfulness. What happens then is Jacob builds another pillar. He's already built two pillars in this chapter. He built two kind of altars to God in Bethel, and now he's setting up another pillar. The first and second pillars were marked by the joy of God's promise. This third pillar is stained with heartache and disappointment and hardship. And so I wish I could say that Jacob's suffering ends right here. But as we push into verses 22 and later on in the chapter, we see more suffering on Jacob's part. Look at verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now look, he goes into this genealogy right after that. The sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servants, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's, servants, uh, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him into Paddan Aram. See, what happens here is... is uh, God is kind of giving us this listing of all of these sons of Jacob because remember, we just were promised that kings would come from his body, that his uh, generations would be like sands on the seashore. And God's kind of recounting. There's 12 of them. Three of them are discounted. Remember last chapter we saw Simeon and Levi acted uh, presumptuously and, and went and killed half of a city or the whole city. Now Reuben has done this thing. And what exactly is this that Reuben is doing? What on earth is happening here? This isn't just young um, kind of teenage lust. We might kind of chalk it up to that, that Reuben uh, was just kind of acting out. He was sowing his wild oats, so to speak. But rather, it's probably better for us to think that, that Reuben is trying to usurp Jacob. There's a story in 2 Samuel 16 when Absalom, David's son, is trying to take the throne from his, his father, David. The first thing he does is he takes his concubines to the roof of the palace and he sleeps with them in the public eye so that all people can see. It's actually meant to be, I'm taking over uh, what my father had uh, previously owned. And that's potentially what Reuben is doing here. 
Later on in Genesis 49, Jacob will recount this incident with Reuben, and he'll see it as disqualifying for Reuben to receive blessing. And it's in this context that Moses gives us a genealogy. Hey, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Levi, Shechem, the first three born of of Joseph's line, they're they're not fit to lead. If that weren't enough, it keeps piling on in verse 27. Jacob came to his father in Paddan Aram. Oh, excuse me. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So if it weren't enough that his wife, his most loved wife, had died and his son had violated his trust, now his own father passes away. It's, it's just like hardship after hardship is coming after Jacob. We might ask, what is Mamre? That's the spot where Abraham built an altar to God. It's the place where Abraham was living when God came to him in Genesis 18. It's uh, near the place where Sarah and Abraham were both buried And so Isaac has camped himself in this highly significant, highly historical area for their family, and and Jacob is coming to visit him there, and he comes as his father dies, and he and his brother Esau bury him. Now, if you're keeping score at home, that means that we've had three deaths, four burials. We've had three altars, two built to God and one built to his own wife. Jacob has heard of his own son's betrayal. See, what we see here is that Jacob's leading this kind of roller coaster existence, isn't he? He has the heights of, of God's promise and his faithfulness and his goodness, and then he has the depths of loss and despair that he experiences here in Shechem and later on in Bethel. He builds altars and buries his dead. He experiences soul filling promises matched by heart wrenching loss. And for the servant of God, the life of faith comes with both ecstasy of God's presence and misery of loss and hardship. As Paul would later say in the New Testament, he'd say, who is sufficient for these things? Maybe you're here this morning and you feel that. You feel this tension between uh, the massive joy that we can have in Christ and the promises that we experience as we kind of... uh, cling to those in faith, we also experience, though, the hardships of of a sin-cursed world, the brokenness of relationships, the difficulties that we face. See, it's with this that we say that God's promise gives us heading amidst difficulties, our big idea. We remember God's promise to navigate life's difficulties. See, the truth is this morning that we currently live between promise and fulfillment, Jacob was given this massive promise, but no fulfillment of those promises, or at least uh, mild or partial fulfillment of those promises. He still didn't possess the land that God had promised him. While he was blessed with these 12 sons, he still wasn't a nation. Uh, There were no kings established in his line. 
He had experienced God's protection and and a few other things that God had promised, but in terms of the fulfillment of Genesis 12 or the fulfillment of Genesis 28 or even the fulfillment of the promises of Genesis 35, Jacob hadn't experienced that yet. See, we also live between promise and fulfillment. I want to put a, a graphic in front of us to help us kind of understand it. See, there's promises made to us uh, historically be- before us. When Jesus came, he, he made massive prom- promises, and only some of those have been fulfilled. Uh, example, Revelation chapter 20, Jesus says, I am making all things new. Well, all things aren't new yet right? And so we wait for those promises to be fulfilled. We are waiting for God to show us the fulfillment and the notions of those things so that they're actually real and tangible. I want to give us another thing as Owen moves to the next slide. We see this particularly that the promises made at the resurrection of Christ, it's, it's actually initiated as Jesus is raised to new life. We enter into this new phase. But right now, you and I live in this spiritual resurrection. Uh, Romans 7, or Romans 6, 1 through 7 tells us that uh, we have been kind of raised to new life, that if anyone uh, is dead, he's no longer a slave to sin, and it calls us to live in this newness of life because we've been spiritually raised. But we haven't yet experienced bodily resurrection as believers. Someday, you and I will experience perfected bodies like Jesus Christ. We see this in passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere. So we have some of the promises fulfilled, but we don't have all of the promises fulfilled, and we're eagerly waiting. And what that leaves us in is the the distance between where we are right now with promises unfulfilled and and where we will be is just the equation for suffering. As we still uh, retain our sinful nature, as we still live in a sin-cursed world, all of these things are potential for us that we could suffer difficulty and hardship. See, all of our suffering can be accounted for in this gap. If sin still remains, human suffering has a cause. And if promise remains unfulfilled, all suffering is used by God to move us to that promise. I want to turn us to a passage this morning because I think this has been really helpful in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes this, For to this you have been called, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I wonder if this morning we might just dig into verse 21. And we'll kind of reference the rest of the passage. I'm going to ask Owen to just keep it up on the slide so we can all see it with clarity. But I wonder if we can just hang our hats in verse 21 for a second. See, the first thing that Peter tells us is that we were called to this. We were called to suffering. If we are called to Christ, we are called to suffer like Christ. In fact, that's what Paul is saying. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered. You have an example See, Paul gives us this statement in Acts 14, 
38, Paul returns to his converts in Asia Minor and says, and encourages them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. John 15, Jesus promises suffering. He says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Later on in chapter 16 of of John, he says, In the world you will have tribulation. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3 that uh, he asks that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for these afflictions. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. We should expect hardship, persecution, difficulty is inevitable for the person of faith. It is bound up in our calling to Christ. And as Christ suffered, so will we. It's here that we might just raise our hands and and provide an objection. We might say, I don't see a lot of suffering in American Christianity. I don't see a lot of persecution. I don't see a lot of burnings at the stake. I don't see a lot of that stuff, right? You look through church history, you see that men and women clung to the Bibles, that we have stained our blood-stained Bibles as men and women clung for their faith to the Bible as they were martyred, as they were burned, as they were put to death. How does that not happen today? And specifically, I would ask the question like this. What does persecution look like in a nation that values religious freedom? In a nation that possesses this concept of separation of church and state. See, separation of church and state was created so that churches would not convert by compulsion. If you know your church history, the Jesuits in Spain uh, were doing the Spanish Inquisition to bring about conversion amongst those who would not claim Catholic faith. See, physical persecution in our country is punishable by law. Therefore, persecution will fall into other categories in this, in this area. You won't face the, the death yet uh, because of your faith. And so what will happen is you'll face different kinds of persecution, a social persecution. You, you'll be treated as an oddball. You might receive occupational persecution where you'll be passed over for job opportunities. You won't be hired for positions because you claim faith in Jesus Christ. See, uh, the persecution that we face might look a little bit different, but it's still very present and very real. And so as Peter is writing in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, through this you have been called because Christ also suffered. Don't think that just because you live in America, suffering is not available to you. It is. See, the second thing that Paul, Peter highlights is that Jesus suffered for us. See, in this verse, Peter highlights the exemplary nature of his suffering. Look at what he says. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Jesus is one who suffered perfectly. Verses 22 and 23 spell it out. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
Jesus is faced with persecution. He's got the crown of thorns on his head. He's whipped and lashed and punched, and he does not revile in return. He only returns kindness for hatred, hatred with kindness. See, what Peter says here is that Jesus is an example in suffering. That is, Peter is, as Peter uses the word, the hupogramos. That word is, is only used here in the New, New Testament. It's a combination word. The word hupo is under, and gramos is, is the word writing. And so it's really literally an underwriting. Now, that term has a, a connotation in our culture that's not what he's talking about. In, in the first century, what you were doing is if you were teaching someone to write, you would write out the alphabet on a piece of papyrus, and that person would come, and they would trace the letters. They would learn how to write, and Jesus became our hupogramos. He became the one that we trace the corners of his being. We do not revile in return. We do not uh, stand up uh, against these authorities, as Peter has already said in 1 Peter chapter 2. We don't violate those uh, unrighteous masters that we sit under. We, if we are wives married to unbelieving uh, husbands, we don't reject their authority. We trace the life of Jesus. We submit ourselves, we act like Jesus does so that the life of Jesus comes out in 3D for the watching world. So what we see is Jesus is an example, but he's also an exchange. Look at verse 24, look at what he says. Christ suffered for you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Do you know that Jesus suffered for your sinfulness if you believe in Christ? And as he suffered for you, he suffers with you. Tim Keller makes this statement that the only religion in our modern era where a deity suffers is Christianity. Christianity is the only one that has a God that enters into our suffering with us. Jesus suffered a vicarious death on your behalf. The the punishment of our sins deserved, Jesus took upon himself, not begrudgingly, not unwillingly, but instead he laid down his life. No man takes it from him, like John 10 tells us. And so Jesus is our example. Jesus is our exchange. Jesus is also our empowerment. Look at what verse 20. 24 goes on to say, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, he died so that we might live in righteousness. Jesus didn't leave you helpless in your suffering. He didn't just give you an example and say, figure it out. Jesus empowers us for righteous living. George MacDonald says this. He says, The Son of God suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. You get that? Jesus suffered and died, not so that you can escape suffering, but so that you can suffer in the redemptive way of Jesus' sufferings, that your suffering can lead to eternal fruitfulness before the Lord that your suffering has meaning before God. 
See, we might step away from this and we might say, um, what, what exactly am I supposed to do, Jason? That's a very valid question. And I appreciate uh, the emphasis that we want to put on, what does this have meaning for me? How does this have meaning for me? My push this morning is simply this. As people of God, as people of the promise, let's cling to the promises that God's given to us. Some of you might step away and you're thinking, what am I supposed to do? Well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to look for suffering. Uh, some of us would say like this, that Christian, the Christian life uh, is only worth living because it really stinks so badly, right? Uh, we have this logic in us that uh, the Christian life isn't real, it isn't actual if we're not facing suffering. We weight our Christian fidelity by the sheer amount of suffering that we take in, and in that we be perfectly miserable. See, the truth is that suffering is not to be pursued. The promises are to be believed. We're not to set out to find ourselves suffering. You don't go to work and try to be a jerk and see if he'll treat you poorly. Somebody you're talking to, right? Jesus juke everybody at the water cooler, you know? You know what? Doing the John 4 thing. Jesus offers living water. You want that? That's not what he's calling us to. Instead, he calls us to rich faith in the promises. And the more you believe the promises of God and bank on them, can I just tell you the harder your life will become? Consider Jacob. Go with me down this line of thought for a second. Jacob never buys land. Why? God's going to give him land. Jacob refuses to marry Canaanite women. Why? Because God told him that he would give him servants. They give him progeny. He travels back to his homeland to face his enemy, Esau. He, why does he do that? He does that because of the intervention of God. God called him back to Canaan. He leaves Laban even though he's getting rich. Why? Because God called him to leave. See, all of these actions in Jacob's life lead to difficulty, don't they? Jacob has wealth, but he chooses not to own land. He has wealth, but chooses not to take foreign wives. He has uh, blessing, but he chooses not to stay where he has received blessing with Laban. Why? Because of faith. See, practically speaking, your faith in God's promise will lead to patterns of life that will create difficulty. Because you believe the church is worth it. You believe Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because you believe in the church, the Lord's work in the church, you don't sleep in on Sunday mornings. Because you believe in God's work in the church, you invest as a servant in various ministries. Because you believe that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, your, your finances aren't, be, you aren't yours, but they're God's. You tithe and provide meals and give generous, generously to others in need. Your relationships will lean to Christ-centeredness. You'll talk to non-Christians about Jesus, and when you grab coffee with a Christian friend, you'll, you'll gravitate toward those 
truths that you've been clinging to in your personal time in the Word. You'll have hard conversations with those who aren't trusting in Jesus or walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. You'll speak to homosexuals and adulterers and liars and thieves with a particular agenda because you love them deeply. See, living by faith in no man's land between promise and fulfillment will lead to tension with the world around you. But that will only happen if you truly bank on the promises of God. Let me give a couple, just a buckshot of different promises that God has given to us. Matthew 28, Jesus in his ascension says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is with us right now? As the Spirit resides inside of us, Jesus is present with us. It leads to a different kind of action. There's no sin to be hidden like that of Achan. We can't just bury it underneath uh, some secret secretiveness that we hide from our brothers and sisters. Jesus is always present. The Spirit is always with us. He sees everything we mentioned this before, Revelation 21, I am making all things new. Do you believe that God is making all things new? The systems of the world are broken, and we're waiting for the return of Christ to bring newness and goodness back to the world that he has created. Do you believe that? Do you trust it? Football games this afternoon, you're going to see John 3.16. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Do you believe that? It is not based upon your efforts or your good works or the good deeds you've done, the old ladies you helped cross the street or anything else you've accomplished. It's based solely upon faith in Jesus Christ. That is how you are saved. That is how you anticipate eternal life with God and Christ. Romans 6, that anyone has, who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. That, do you believe that? That now you are raised to new life in Jesus, that you're no longer bound to your sinful nature. See, these are the promises that we cling to. How? How do we cling to these things? We memorize them. We study them. We talk about them. Every week as a church, we get together around the Word of God on Sunday mornings, but before that, we do community groups, and we get together, and we discuss the words of God, and we we turn those things over. When we uh, come into conflict with others in the body of Christ, we break out the Word of God, and we, we parse out what exactly God requires of us. When we look at who we will vote for or, or where we're going to invest our money, we first consult the words of God to us, and we bank upon the truths that God speaks to us. Because these promises help us navigate our difficult world, don't they? So I'm just encouraging you to cling to God's rich promises. Memorize, study, speak. So that you might find in them the glorious promises of Jesus Christ. And as you internalize the promises of Jesus, he might sustain you through your most difficult hardships through the loss of loved ones, through uh, the broken relationships, through whatever else you might face. That's what God gives us. He gives us a resurrected life in Christ, the spirit that dwells within us, and his flawless word to guide us. 
I want to pray that God makes us people of the promise. And God allows us to be people who cling to his words and his truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that. Before your presence this morning, Lord, we ask that you would make us people who cling to your promises, that we could navigate the hardships that we face. Lord, we recognize that you're gracious to us. You've uh, supplied us with, with mercy in your presence so that we come before you with confidence even now. But Lord, we also recognize that we'll leave this place and we'll go out into a sin-cursed world. We ourselves being sinful, interacting with other sinners, and we need grace and mercy from you. Teach us, Lord, to bank upon the promises that you've shown us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.